Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're talking about art as an effective way to engage students in thinking about the role they might play in addressing social injustice. We're here with the author of a new Harvard Education Press book called Social Justice Art, a Framework for Activist Art Pedagogy. We're here with Marit Dewhurst. Thanks. Hi. Marit, give us a quick sense about what brought you to this subject. Uh, Was there a particular art experience that you had that involved the social justice component, or is this something that you came about sort of accidentally? No, that's a great question. I actually, I grew up in a family that spent a lot of time working in the arts and museums and cultural heritage work. And so it was always witness to the ways in which the participation in some kind of art production or looking at art was this really interesting way of bringing people together and allowing them to engage in complex conversations about who we are as a culture, how we engage with each other, how we imagine a world that could be better than our own. And so growing up, I was always kind of witness to these opportunities to watch these people in these experiences. But then as a young educator, I taught theater in a detention center outside of Detroit. And I remember watching these young men come to life in a way that, at the risk of sounding romantic or overly nostalgic about it, was so profoundly critical and real and honest and engaged in trying to think about their own experiences in the world, to critique what systems uh, contributed to them actually being incarcerated. And I remember sitting in the audience after teaching them this drama session and watching and being like, something is happening here. Like Something really important is happening here and trying to explain it to family and friends afterwards and realizing that I just didn't have the right language to explain it with the same gravity of what I had witnessed you know so everything ended up sounding so like cliche and like oh these young people made art and isn't that wonderful but it was more than just wonderful that I could tell there was something some real rigorous thinking and critical analysis happening there, and I wanted to figure out how we could start to pull that apart. And in many ways, this book sort of puts a a language to that. It helps better examine the pedagogy of art and how it evokes all sorts of different reactions and empowerment. And I think you do a really great job um, explaining this and, and getting social justice art down to, uh, I think you have three learning processes. You want to share with the audience? Yeah, thanks. I, You know, I think part of what I was trying to do is to delve into those momentary decisions that young people make when they're creating a work of art. And anybody who's done anything creative can probably understand how difficult it is to really name what's happening when we start with a blank piece of paper and end with some kind of art form on it. Um, and so trying to get in there is difficult to name. Um, and I think one of the things that the young people taught me was sort of how to look at what were the main processes that they engaged in uh, as a way of talking about their work. So the first one being this idea of connecting and that they were really trying to connect what they believed for the world, what brought them to the idea of making art or social justice purpose to their own art making. So figuring out, like, what are the connections in their own world? Like, what do they see every day? What do they, um, what are the images that are connected to the issues of 
homelessness or body image or um, racism, gentrification, what are the different connections there? And as they started naming those, they started to build their visual vocabulary to actually make some more works of art. From there, they moved into questioning. And so that was where we really delved into the more critical analysis of things. So they're asking questions, why does this connect to this? Why does this connect to that? And what are the underlying factors that are contributing to social justice and some of the the inequalities that pervade their own experiences and our society in general. So they're really trying to pull apart, like, are there economic factors? Are there cultural factors? You know, um, how does race play into it? Gender, class, and pulling those apart in a really thoughtful manner through making artwork. So they're mapping ideas. They're um, juxtaposing two different images to see what the connections are. So using their art as this tool to do this kind of analytic thinking. And then the final piece of it was translating. So taking some of the analysis that they've done and figuring out a way to translate that to an audience. So how can they take their the tools they have as artists and translate these ideas into something that can be viewed and understood by some imagined audience. So this idea of balancing their artistic selves and their activist intentions really came into play seems like this book really does appeal to such a broad range of different stakeholders from folks interested in arts education, social justice programming, anything related to youth development, youth empowerment. Was that the point of the book to kind of try and reach all these different audiences? And what's the best way to actually use the book? Yeah, I mean, that is my hope that it can be useful to a range of people, both those who come from an arts background and who might be comfortable with materials and methods and techniques, and also those who are actually more rooted in youth development work or after-school programming um, who haven't yet taken major forays into the arts. Um, And I'm hoping it appeals to both because of the, the language around learning processes so that it can be entered into whether you've had that artistic background or not. I think there, the way I see it, there are sort of two main uses for the book. One is as a way to help people think through how they can do this kind of work and to do so in a way that is not a prescribed curriculum. I think one of the big challenges of anything that's related to social justice education is that you cannot prescribe a curriculum. To do so actually undermines the very nature of what it means to do social justice work. It must be contextual. It must come from the particular time, place, culture, needs, and um, strengths of the group of young people with whom you're working. So. The hope is that it serves as kind of a blueprint so that as an educator, as an organizer, you could say, all right, let me think about how I want to engage the arts and social justice concepts together. And here are some ways that I can structure a curriculum based on the art forms that are locally produced in my culture, based on what the young people are most interested in, based on the issues that are rising to the surface as most important to this particular community at this moment in time. So one uses it as this kind of like, for lack of a better term, a blueprint that could help you pin your own sort of dream curriculum on there, working with the young people you you're, will be teaching. The second use, I think, is also more from a researcher or evaluator perspective in that, as you mentioned, we 
really struggled with language and how we talk about what happens when we're making art for social justice. And I think it very quickly can spiral into sort of, well, young people made it, so it must be great. You know, we're like, that's a beautiful mural because kids made it. That's not why it's beautiful. It's beautiful because there is rigorous thought in it. It's because, you know, they are tackling issues that have meaning for them. And so the second use of the book is trying to give evaluators, funders, policy people some of the language to how to think about how to analyze social justice art making so that it's not a simplistic art form, but there's actually some um, lenses that we can use to see, oh, is this work really meeting the needs of the community? Is it really engaging young people? Or are young people being used as kind of the, the artist to make something just for the sake of it being made by young people? So I'm hoping that the second half of the book provides that kind of analytic lens or set of lenses that people can use to better critique and, you know, better figure out how to support the work financially, um, from a policy perspective and so forth. Uh, I'm wondering if you can sort of, uh, f I'm, I'm going to use a very bad pun here, if you can paint us a picture right now, <laughs> paint a picture for our audience in terms of what is one particular piece of art that the students, the high schoolers, and the activist arts class in New York, or even outside of that, that holds up as a great example of both activist art and showing an impact in the community and showing that transformational nat nature amongst the artists. Okay. Yeah, I think for me, one of the pieces that stands out was a work by a student named Kyle, who was a 17-year-old young man, um, played on his varsity basketball team in, the, in a public school in New York City, had not really taken many art courses. And he signed up for this activist art class. And at the same time, his mother was getting very involved in some of the gentrification uh, issues that were happening in his own community and in, in his own, essentially, the block in which he lived. And so he got really interested in that as a topic to pursue and spent the course of the the program researching that. So figuring out, like, what does gentrification mean? What are the pros and cons? You know, who gains, who loses, who benefits? And starting to really pull apart some of the layers of what happens there. Uh, and he ended up creating a work of art that was a gentrification Jenga game. You know, the game Jenga, where you have the wooden blocks that you pile into a tower and slowly remove one by one until it falls over. And he took the blocks and came up with a list of words, both positive and negative, that were related to his research on gentrification. So, you know, everything from, um, you know, just even code words of, Section 8 housing or increased um, groceries, grocery options, um, higher rent, um, better schools, uh, people being forced out, evictions. And so we had all of these words and painted them on each of the blocks so that as viewers came in to experience his work of art, it was a participatory work, which meant that they were encouraged to play the game at the exhibit. And in order to play the game, you slowly remove these words, right? So it causes the audience to read and think about, well, how does this relate to gentrification? And eventually it does all fall down. So there's kind of a nice metaphor that runs through it also. So I would say that his work struck me in many ways. One, because it, was, it had this participatory nature so that it immediately engaged audiences. 
he was also very thoughtful in terms of critiquing both the the pros and cons of gentrification. What are we really talking about when we're talking about people losing their homes? Uh, but we are also talking about, you know, better access to grocery stores uh, and really kind of balancing those activist and artistic aims in creating a, a visually stunning work. Um, for Kai, Kyle himself, this also provided an opportunity for him to really learn what was going on in his community. And he became, over the course of the, the program, even more knowledgeable and more critical about what was happening in his, essentially on his own block. For this story and many, many more related to social justice, art, activism, youth empowerment, be sure to check out hepg.org, Social Justice Art, a framework for activist art pedagogy. Marit Dewhurst, thank you very much for being on the EdCast. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.